Hello, hello, and welcome back to Force Multiplier. It's good to be back. I know it's been a while, so thanks for jumping back into the feed. You know, back in season one, we had so many inspiring conversations with impressive people, and I'm excited to go even deeper this season into some of these issues affecting us all in hopes that we can use this power of collaboration to take one more step towards solving some of these problems together. So in this season opener, we are going to talk about climate change, but through a different lens. Let me start with a quick personal story. Host privilege alert. It was the summer 2019, and I was attending my college reunion. My first year roommate has since grown up to become a very committed climate activist. His name is Danielle Giles. He gave us a great gift at this reunion. He ran an interactive workshop, and his was called The Optimist's Guide to Climate Change. And he had about 100 of us in the room, and it's this big lecture hall, and he had a computer projection on the screen, which was a model, a manipulable model, where we could determine the future. What steps we would take to mitigate or adapt to climate change, what energy policies, what food production, what transportation and housing infrastructure. And there were trade-offs and there were limits in budget and you could see the effect in dollars and temperature in people's lives. That session taught me a lot. It, It taught and reminded me that climate change affects everything, that we the people have a lot more power than we think, that we can vote with ballots, but also with dollars and with attention. It reminded me that technology and culture can play a huge role in shaping public opinion. You hear stats like, we can avoid reaching that Paris Accord 1.5 degrees Celsius if we just cut global emissions in half over the next eight years. And I look around at all the stuff we're not doing, kicking the can down the road, and we said that 12 years ago, we said that 20 years ago. It can lead you to think, what's the point? The point is, every partial degree increase avoided is life preserved. It's millions of people and millions of other species. We're not the only ones living here. And so even if we don't make the 1.5, it's worth it to try. Because every effort toward it, every partial reduction is improving life for someone, is improving the air for someone, is making a river more habitable for someone or something. But there's good news. There's people actually doing something about it. People like my college roommate, Danielle. People like the folks we bring to you in this show. And the even better news, we don't just have to watch them do their thing. We can help them. We can help them help us if we join forces like Voltron, defend the universe and ourselves from the worst outcomes of the climate crisis. We are in the match of our lives. And I've brought two amazing players to you for this roundtable discussion. Joining us from Melbourne, Australia, is Amanda McKenzie, CEO of the Climate Council and an environmental leader. Amanda spearheaded Australia's largest ever crowdfunding campaign to start this organization, raising $1.4 million in a week. She's the chair of the Center for Australian Progress, sits on the board of Plant International Australia, but it's her work with the Climate Council that has really mobilized people, everyday citizens, concerned with the current state of climate change. 
Much like Amanda, our second guest, Derek Emsley, he's using the power of technology to reach the masses and create impact. He is the CEO and co-founder of Tentree, which on the surface looks like a typical apparel company, this kind of new brand that might show up in your Instagram feed. But Derek and his team describe what they're doing as a tree planting company that happens to sell apparel. With each of your purchases, 10 tree plants, 10 trees. Get it? To offset your carbon footprint. Two different guests, one singular mission. To save the planet, but really, to save ourselves. Let's dive in. Welcome to Force Multiplier, Derek and Amanda. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Amanda, I want to start with you. Australia is a massive country. You've experienced a lot of climate-related challenges. Uh, The big bushfires, the hottest day on record. And then things got pretty biblical with the floods, too. So it's like it's burning, it's too dry, now it's too wet, there's too much water. How is everyone in Australia doing right now? If you could just give me an individual report on every (laughs) Australian. Uh, How y'all doing? Yeah, we have had everything and people are pretty tired. We have a phrase in Australia called, she'll be right, mate. And that's generally used for just about everything, but people are not using that phrase so frequently now. I think since Black Summer, which happened just before the pandemic, where we had fires starting in winter, they didn't end till autumn. At one point, a thousand miles of forest was on fire. It was just the most massive event And since that time, we have had the, as you said, the biblical floods. One of the records there was two metres above the previous record. It was absolutely huge. If you can imagine a McDonald's restaurant, there was one of those big McDonald's signs out the front. The water was up to the yellow arches. So we've had our fair share of extreme weather events in the last few years, and people are really worried. We've got an election on, and it's one of the big issues. What are you doing about it in terms of the Climate Council? Can you just briefly explain what the Climate Council is? Yeah, sure. So we were set up almost eight years ago now when a conservative leader, Tony Abbott, came into power and we had previously been a government body called the Climate Commission. That body was established to provide expert commentary on climate change to the general public. It was an independent government agency. And the first act of the Abbott government was to abolish the Climate Commission. It was quite a statement to say, we don't want to be acting on climate change. That's been part of our platform. And we're going to get rid of these guys that are educating the public. They took down the website, all the resources on day one. Was this like a see no evil, hear no evil kind of thing? Like if we don't know, then it won't hurt us? Oh, absolutely. And we don't like these scientists always telling us that there's a big problem on the horizon. So why don't we just get rid of them? Yeah. (laughs) So four days later, we did a crowdfunding campaign, which was at the time the most successful in Australia's history. We raised $1.4 million in a week to create a new organisation called the Climate Council. And the idea was to get an organisation that could be that independent provider of information to the public so that people knew where they could find a trusted resource. But then as we've evolved over time, we've done more and more work, particularly around communicating to lots of different audiences in different ways to make climate change really salient. 
in the past, climate change has been an issue often just for sort of policy wonks and scientists and politicians to debate. We want to make it something that firefighters are talking about, the doctors, the solar installers. And then we do a range of other projects which are around direct advocacy, particularly to local governments and state governments, because we've had not much success in getting our federal government to act on climate change. So the other levels have been really important. Do you ever thank Tony Abbott for inspiring the creation of what sounds like something much more robust than the thing that it replaced? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because at the time it was terrible to have this thing, you know, be dismantled and then it rose like this phoenix from the ashes. And now our budget is, I think, eight times the size of the previous Climate Commission. And we substantially outlasted Tony Abbott as well. He was (laughs) deposed. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Just so you're literally more sustainable as well. I really Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Derek, I want to welcome you as well and get into what you're up to. You've described your company, Tentree, as a tree planting company that happens to sell clothes. Clothes, which I have recently purchased, by the way. I'll let you know how they turn out. Why do you believe this is one of the most effective ways of combating climate change? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple pieces to that that question. I think one is where tree planting sits in that broader conversation. And the other is the approach of creating a business around this idea of giving back. And, you know, I, I think Amanda positioned what they're doing so well in some of the challenges that are often faced by organizations when they're dependent on, you know, whether it's a government approach where the incentives aren't necessarily aligned with actually creating long-term sustainable change. So we started our business, Tentree, about a decade ago now. And really, the focus for us was, to your point, to create a vehicle that allowed us to plant trees. And in fairness, we were really agnostic as to what the product was. It was less about creating an apparel business And it was more about creating a vehicle that allowed us to sort of share the message. And the message for us was really this idea of planting trees, showcasing the impact tree planting could have, and connecting people at an individual level, which again, just resonates with what Amanda was saying, connecting your everyday person with how they can create an impact. You know, I think it's so important these days when a lot of the messaging out there has become really disempowering. We need to inspire people to take part in action and actually be a part of making change. And so for us, trees are an incredible symbol, and they also create an incredible impact. Well, and and the impact is something I want to zoom in on, and then I have a shared question for both of you. But on the 10-tree model, Derek, a lot of us have been exposed to these buy one, give one sort of business models. For every shoe I buy, I give a shoe to another person that we both just have one shoe. I don't know how it all (laughs) adds up, but how is your model building beyond that buy one, give one kind of framing? We have to date planted over 75 million trees. Our goal is to plant a billion trees by 2030. The reality is though, there's a lot of messaging out there that's using these ideas of impact and this idea of tangibility. And The reality is, is oftentimes that product might create a negative impact and they're using that consumer messaging as a vehicle to inspire a purchase when they're not living up to the values and things like that. So for us, first and foremost, we ensure that 
the product that we're using as a vehicle has as little negative impact as it can possibly have. So that means it's sourced sustainably, we use ethical manufacturing, and we offset our scope one, two, and three emissions. But the second piece is we plant 10 trees for every product we sell. And your question was, how do you make sure that it's not creating reverse effects? And we've been fortunate to visit these sites all across the globe in areas like Senegal and Madagascar and Canada and US. And what's amazing about tree planting is to use the old adage, it's not about giving somebody a fish, it's about teaching them to fish. The negative impacts in a lot of areas environmentally, particularly around deforestation, are a result of people needing to provide food for their families shelter, firewood, things like that. And they cut down trees to do so. So planting trees isn't just about putting sticks in the ground. It's about making sure they're getting done the right way with the right community incentives, with the right long-term impact. You both have talked about connecting people and getting past the doom and gloom messaging, whether it's through planting trees or just through clearer communications about the climate crisis and what we can do about it. Amanda, you even got very specific. You you know, firefighters are engaging. What does that connectivity and collaboration look like when you take this wide spectrum of folks and connect them to this very important topic through your work? Yeah, it's a great question. One example has been working with former fire chiefs and we call them SES responders, those that respond to floods and other sorts of disasters. So a few years ago now, prior to the Black Summer huge fires, we saw that those sorts of fires would be on the horizon and brought together a whole range of these former fire chiefs. And former is important because it means they've got a lot of capacity to speak. They're not limited (laughs) by their government role. (laughs) Right, right. So we have had that group of emergency responders coming out in the media and consistently putting a view forward around what sorts of measures we should be taking to prepare for these sorts of events, warning the federal government that black someone was going to come. And that's been really effective in changing hearts and minds because those people are so trusted they're unexpected. You know, people are used to seeing activists or wonky scientists in the media, but having these older white guys in suits and (laughs) uniforms talking about climate change is a bit different. And it caught people's attention in a really new way. And that group has now gone on to hold a summit around how do we prepare for these sorts of events and bringing together a whole lot of different people. So local governments who are directly affected and preparing communities, Indigenous people who have used fire to manage the landscape from time immemorial. So there's so many important lessons that white people should have learned about how to manage the Australian landscape. And now there is much more dialogue around learning those lessons in preparing for worsening fire conditions. So the emergency leaders were sort of the first group that came out with a lot of authority and then been bringing a whole lot of others together in how we respond and arguing for a level of preparedness for these sorts of events, but also that we need to be mitigating climate change at the same time. I just want to congratulate you on a very savvy strategy. Was that purposeful or did it emerge unexpectedly? It was certainly purposeful. I think one of the key audiences that we need to change has been older conservative males in particular. And having people that look more similar to them rather than the radical activists or whoever it is speaking was really important. So we've used firefighters, we've used doctors, 
We've used former defence chiefs as well. So we're getting all the old men in, in suits lined up. <laughs> men in some kind of uniform. It yeah. Really. yeah, that's right. Uh, no, that's great. I mean, people have all kinds of feelings about a lot of different jobs in this country, but firefighters, I believe, still maintain a very, very high approval across all kinds of divides. Yeah, absolutely. Derek, I have a similarly inspired question because you also mentioned the connection that people make and you're able to, to bring folks together. What does that feel like for Tentry? What communities are you connecting? What ideas are finding new purchase through your business model that might not have existed before? For us, at the end of the day, it comes down to the consumer. Amanda alluded to this where you're kind of dealing with the old guard and trying to change the conversation. And the consumer is at its core what drives change, whether that be the consumer as a voter for a government or the consumer voting with their wallet for what brands and products that they're going to support. And so when I think of the connection, it's really about inspiring the consumer to recognize the impact that they're actually able to create by shopping mindfully, shopping sustainably. Everything we do is about creating a clear sort of educational and empowering narrative that connects that customer with their ability to have an impact. Because our belief is we can create an amazing outcome just through planting trees, but we will have a far greater impact long-term if we also inspire people to realize that they can have a voice and they have many ways to sort of actually bring that voice to life, whether that be through buying a sustainable product, voting in other ways, and actually being out and sort of evangelizing their beliefs. You're listening to a podcast called Force Multiplier. Action meets impact. Now, I'm sure you've grown to expect ads baked into your podcast, but we're going to do something a little different. To walk the walk, we've donated our ad space to the organizations that need it most, organizations directly tackling today's greatest challenges. Be right back. This is the world we believe in, a world full of hope and joy and celebration, a world where everyone has access to clean and safe water. You can help create that world when you give to Charity Water, 100% of your donation funds clean water projects thanks to a generous group of donors who cover our operating costs. We have completely separate bank accounts for overhead and water, and we prove every project we fund with photos and GPS coordinates. All of our projects are completed by local partners who are experts in clean water, sanitation, and hygiene. As a member of our monthly giving community, the spring, you'll join nearly 50,000 people around the world who are on a mission to end the water crisis. Since 2015, this passionate and dedicated community has helped nearly half a million people in 17 countries gain access to clean water. With your support, we can work even faster and reach even more people. Join us today. Hey, I'm still Baratunde, your host for Force Multiplier, but I'm checking in with you with a little different energy because if you're listening, you like the show. And if you like the show, you might like my other show, How to Citizen, where we take citizen as a verb and find out from people practicing the ways we can shape our community by showing up, investing in relationships, understanding power, and valuing our collective selves. Check it out at howtocitizen.com or wherever you get your podcast. 
to people have to feel their power. That's part of what I'm hearing. They have to feel connected. They have a, a new access to this topic, one that they can directly relate to, and then they can point to something and say, "I did that." You know, if I helped fund the climate council, and then I see these reports about reports that you're publishing, where you easily explain the IPCC reports that have so befuddled most of us. Yeah, I can see the results of that impact, and with Ten Tree, I can see the results of the trees that I've planted. What else are y'all doing, Derek, especially this Climate Plus program to kind of deepen that connection to the individual so that they feel some sense of ownership over the solutions? So for us, the biggest power of trees is the tangibility. I mean, when you think of this idea of a pound of CO2 in the air, it's really hard to grasp and create an emotional connection. But we all inherently have some sort of emotional connection to trees. So Everything we do is in service of connecting this customer with the trees that they're planting. So over the last four years, we've created a technology that we've rolled out across all of our projects to collect data directly from the ground and connect that consumer with it so that every single product has a QR code that you can scan, find out where your trees are planted, learn a little bit more about the impact. And you're actually able to download a digital, what we call impact wallet, where you're actually able to see, you know, the impact you're creating after your first, second, third purchase. And we're starting to bring other businesses into the fold too, so that if you're planting trees with 10 tree, you can see that impact. And if you're planting with others, you're able to see that too. So we're really trying to gamify and make this idea of having an impact tangible. I uh, have two quick notes for you on that. One, you sound like the Lorax from Dr. Seuss, (laughs) (laughs) speaking for these trees. Thank you for that. And if you ever dive deeper into the Web3 world, those uh, impact reports and kind of proof of your tree, clearly they're going to be NF trees. Absolutely. So you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have built our platform with that in mind. I mean, the idea behind Veritree is that when you look at the broad conversation, we've created this carbon tunnel vision around tree planting, when in reality, there's so many other benefits that tree planting can create. But when we're just looking at satellite images, a lot of that gets lost. Our program that we built is meant to collect that data from the ground in a way that's verifiable, auditable, and transparent. And then we also put it on that blockchain so that we're able to create these fungible products, these NF trees that you talk about, <laughs> and actually create something that hopefully has value. Because if, if one day we can actually value nature, then we're all going to be a lot more interested in preserving it. I'm feeling good about a lot of what you all are sharing. I'm still honestly angry about where we've allowed ourselves to get. Amanda, a lot of the reason we're here is because of explicit goals to miscommunicate the science and distract us and deny these truths to the point it's very expensive to reckon with them now in life, in dollars, and in the limited time that we have to adapt and mitigate to these circumstances. What happened or what didn't happen as a part of the communications failure around the climate crisis? Yeah, it's a really important question. And one of the key things that happened was that the fossil fuel industry took 
the lessons that Big Tobacco had learnt as to how to delay action on an issue and implemented it. Many of the same people that had worked in Big Tobacco, confusing people, using a range of tactics, went and then worked for the fossil fuel industry. And for countries like Australia and the United States, Canada, that have big fossil fuel interests, it has substantially altered the debate. The Australian politics, for instance, we have gas lobbyists and coal lobbyists that are in a revolving door into parliament advising some of the key people who are making decisions on this. So it's no surprise that it's been very difficult. But what I would say is that if we look back on this as a 30-odd year period, it is actually quite a speedy technological and social change compared to other changes that humanity has witnessed. So it's sort of holding both things in your mind. One is we certainly haven't done enough. The issue is all around us. It's really scary. And there have been people that have deliberately prevented us from getting further down the track to tackle the issue. But then on the other hand, there is a lot of progress going on. So in Australia, for instance, we have 3 million homes with solar panels on the roof. So those consumers have taken action into their own hands. So we need to be able to look back and say, We have made some substantial progress. There's a long way to go. We need to hold those people accountable that have prevented us from action. But we can't let a lack of momentum get us down. We need to be building that momentum and hope into the future. As you've been working on and serving on this council, what has kept you inspired in terms of communicating the truth or having people feel more empowered and not just overwhelmed by the size of this challenge? I feel like action is really an antidote to that sense of despair or disempowerment. And what really inspires me is when I look around at the people that are acting, particularly where there has been a level of inspiration from what the Climate Council has done. So in our mission, we describe ourselves as a catalyst. So we see ourselves as kind of being small and scrappy and able to help others to tackle the issue in their sort of sphere of influence, if you like. So we do a project with local governments that now covers 65% of Australians and local governments can get actually a lot done in terms of reducing emissions, helping local schools put panels on the roof, or maybe it's electric vehicle charges. There's a whole bunch of things they can do. So our theory of change, if you like, is that if you can get enough momentum going, that's where national governments become followers. I think we've expected national governments to be leaders. They generally don't lead. They generally follow. So how do we create the conditions where they kind of have to begrudgingly follow? (laughs) I mean, one of those ways is also to shift not just the communications culture, but the business culture. With Tentry, you're doing that, it seems like, at least on two fronts. You're promoting a consumer culture of increased sustainability, of awareness, of supply chain visibility, like where this stuff comes from a verified sustainable activity, not just greenwashing. And you're enabling other businesses to do the same. So it's not like Tentry has to be the one company in the world that we trust. (laughs) What have been some of the keys to advancing that culture, Derek, in terms of both the business behavior and getting businesses to think beyond their quarterly earnings reports? It's hard. Companies have for years tried to put the onus on the consumer Carbon footprint was more a way to say, take the view off us and think about your own carbon footprint. And I think what's happening now is that consumers are realizing their own power. And 
their focus is being shifted back to the companies. And the companies that lead on these discussions are the companies that will win. And in fact, when we originally built our technology, our thought was to really just, you know, power our own planting. But, you know, for us, if Tentree can create thousands and thousands of tree farms, our technology could potentially create thousands and thousands of ten trees. And so how can we continue to multiply our impact? And Amanda used the word catalyst, and I think this is so key because we have not built the systems or the incentives to push companies or governments to lead in this. And so a lot of the times they follow. And so what's happening right now is the consumer behavior is shifting to say, no, we want to support those businesses that are willing to take that first step. And so our view is that Tentree, what we're trying to build is in many ways the North Star. We're trying to build this idea of what it means to be a restorative business, not just a sustainable one, because to me, sustainable just means doing less bad, <laughs> and restorative means doing more good, which is the future of business. How do you determine what countries benefit from your program? Where are these trees going? Is there a vote? Do they have a popularity contest? Do they weigh in on it? <laughs> the prettiest trees win, for sure. <laughs> the way we look at it is three things. One is that it needs to have a really meaningful environmental impact. And to me, that's not just trees in the ground and carbon out of the air. There has to be a biodiversity impact. We plant in areas where there's a need to prevent soil erosion and getting rid of invasive species, preventing desertification and things like that. The second piece is really around the community and the social infrastructure behind it. At its core, every project we do has to create a positive community outcome. Locally, there's a lot of youth activism that we support. We do tree equity in underprivileged areas. But more internationally, it involves job creation, food security, and different poverty alleviation things. And then the third piece is really we have to be able to audit the work that's happening. So understanding what are those impacts that are happening? When are the trees planted? What's the survivability? What is the socioeconomic outcomes and things like that? And then making sure that the impact we say is happening today actually persists into the future. That's how you maintain trust and don't burn it. What role does tech play for your work, Amanda, in terms of how you organize yourselves uh, as an organization, in terms of how you get your message out and amplify it and reach as many people as possible? Yeah, well, we have an email list that is all of our supporters. And so we have a range of different ways of managing that through our back end. And we're just moving, actually, at the moment, our CRM to Salesforce. So that's, a, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a big process for us. So, you know, having that all be seamless and understanding who is connecting with us and why is important. And then we have a whole variety of different social channels that we're communicating. So I mentioned earlier that we have a specific audience that we've been trying to influence, which is more conservative people. That's particularly because our federal parliament has been dominated by conservatives who have thought that climate change isn't our issue. It's a progressive issue. And we've been trying to break that sense. But then on the other hand, how do you get change that we need to engage lots of different people? And our social channels have often quite a different message to our media channel where we're involved more in the political debate. The social channel will be engaging influences about things that consumers can do. It might be talking about how we can create change and what individuals can do. So we think about our communication strategy as having lots of different audiences and lots of different pathways to reach them. Derek, 
why are tree planting so important in terms of moving the needle on climate change? Do you have any data, numbers, perspective to help us understand the technological power of a tree in our decarbonization effort? You know, there's no question that mechanical carbon removal is an important part of our broader decarbonization strategy. And the reality is that anybody that tells you there's a silver bullet to this is wrong. But nature as a whole is a huge part of our transition right now. And it's not just tree planting. It's also restoring degraded ecosystems. It's preventing additional deforestation. It's improving our forest management practices. And it's sea sequestration and others. But at the end of the day, tree planting right now is one of our most scalable, impactful missions that we have. And not only is it an important part of connecting consumers and individuals back to this symbolic thing that is a tree in nature, which I believe is an important part of the overall approach to restoring our planet. But it also is a big part of this idea that we've had an interest-free loan in the global north for the last hundred years. And when you look at the vast majority of the areas that we can really restore nature in, It's in areas in the global south that really can play a huge role in this decarbonization transition we're going through. And tree planting is a huge part of that. And so I think the last piece I would say is that I think it's a David Attenborough quote. People won't protect what they don't care about, and they don't care about what they haven't experienced. Trees are not just a symbol in our overall decarbonization. They're also about connecting people back to nature so that they want to protect it. Is there a most pressing thing you want people listening to this to know, Derek? If so, now's your shot. I'd say it's about understanding your power as a consumer and as an individual. I think for years and years, we've all felt disempowered by the narrative that's out there. And I think never before have we as individuals had the ability to influence change, whether it be through organizations like what Amanda's running and the thousands of donors that are supporting her and spreading an incredible and really important pressing message, or whether it be voting with your dollar and supporting businesses that actually give a shit and are willing to take a stance. The individuals never had more power than they do today. Amanda, what should we be doing to achieve these goals of net zero? Australia, Canada, United States, Earth, we need to get there sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think it's about all of us looking in our own sphere of influence, which is where do we work? Where do our kids go to school? What is the educational institution we're part of? and thinking about how we can make change with others. So it's not just about the individual action you can take. If you're investing in Tentry, for instance, that's doing work with others to create change and then profile that change. So be communicating it to our friends. It's possible and it's exciting and get on the train with us. I tell people to use their treasure, their time and their voice. So think about where your money's invested, whether it's your pension fund or whether it's your bank, what are they investing their money in? There's your time, where can you be volunteering or putting some effort in? And then finally, your voice. We all have a voice. We need to be relentlessly communicating with our political leaders to tell them how important this is to us. Get on the train. Join us. (laughs) I am so glad I got on this train with both of you, two catalysts 
showing us what more is possible, uh, helping lead our governments, our businesses, and our collective selves to a better future. Thank you very, very much, Derek and Amanda. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. I hope that after listening to Derek and Amanda, some of the overwhelming feelings that can stem from such a massive global issue are starting to subside a bit. I love this idea that they both spoke about, this fundamental theory of giving power to your consumer, your audience, your constituency, your community. When issues are this big, it can be hard to break them down into digestible pieces, and it can leave us all feeling somewhat hopeless. But the ability to say, whoa, my dollar is contributing to this study or to these trees literally being planted around the world, that's an empowering reminder of our power. It puts people back in the driver's seat to really feel like and know that we can make a difference. And to take that step further, to see that collectively, we're creating more awareness than entire governments or long-established corporations have been able to. That's where real change starts. I also just love Amanda's strategy of getting white men in uniform involved. We need everyone to see themselves as part of and beneficiaries of climate solutions, including people we often perceive solely as obstacles to progress. Calling people in can help us pick the right messengers for the right communities to move us all forward. In the spirit of community, you will not want to miss part two of this climate change conversation coming soon. We sit down with a very special young woman who is out there doing the work day in and day out. Because heroes aren't just the people in government creating policy. They're not just big time CEOs, folks sitting on millions and billions of dollars. Sometimes they're, they're just our neighbors and our friends, people among us in our communities. Daphne Frias is a true example of that. And I'm excited for you to hear about her work as an activist and champion for the disabled community. We'll talk more about climate action in particular and how inaction disproportionately targets minority groups. You don't want to miss this. Are you feeling inspired and want to check out more information about the organizations we talked about in this episode? Learn more about our guests and how you can support their work by going to salesforce.org slash force multiplier. Force Multiplier is a production of iHeartRadio and Salesforce.org. Hosted by me, Baratunde Thurston. It's executive produced by Elizabeth Stewart. Produced by Yvonne Sheehan. Edited and mixed by James Foster. And written by Yvette Lopez. A special thank you to our guests, Amanda McKenzie and Derek Emsley. Listen to Force Multiplier on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.